Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Chaos is a word that appeared in multiple news reports to characterize recent events surrounding the firing and subsequent rehiring of OpenAI founder and CEO Sam Altman. It remains unclear exactly why the board of the company chose to dismiss Altman, beyond that he was allegedly, quote, not consistently candid in his communications. A couple of days in, it seemed like OpenAI, which was founded in 2015, might really be on the rocks. At one point, it appeared possible that nearly all of its employees might quit and join Microsoft, the new AI research team under Altman's leadership. But while at first glance it may appear that such chaos would be bad for the $80 billion startup, I suspect it will only benefit the company in the long run. The intrigue around Altman's ouster has bolstered multiple narratives that are useful to OpenAI, particularly the idea that it may have been connected to concerns about rapid technical advances without adequate safety mechanisms. The salience of this narrative and all the conjecture around a possible recent breakthrough is a marketing boost for OpenAI, reinforcing the perception of its products as both fearsome and powerful. But what should policymakers take away from these events? And while it seems like the drama at OpenAI is over for now, could it spark back up again soon? To answer these questions and more, I spoke to one journalist that is both a keen observer of the company and of the rise of AI more generally. My name is Karen Howe. I am a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and I am working on a book about OpenAI, the AI industry, and its impacts on the world. Karen, we'll look forward to when that book comes out. And so pleased to have you bring your expertise, perhaps a little earlier, some of the reporting and the ideas I'm sure that you're going to explore in the book you've had to bring into the public domain in the last couple of days as you reported on this uh, story around OpenAI for the Atlantic. Last time I had you on this podcast was just before Thanksgiving in 2021. Maybe before we jump in, let's just talk about your trajectory since then. You left MIT Technology Review, stint at the Wall Street Journal, now at the Atlantic and the book. Exactly. Yeah. I left MIT Technology Review to join the Wall Street Journal for, I actually briefly switched from AI reporting to cover the tech industry in China. So I moved to Hong Kong and six months after moving, ChatGPT happened. (laughs) And I was juggling then covering the tech industry in China and covering AI. And as the momentum continued to build and build, It just felt like I needed to focus and I needed to come back to AI. And I'd been speaking with, uh, like book agents had reached out to me for a while, but I hadn't really been committed to the particular idea long enough to imagine spending so much time on a book. And then as I started turning back to reporting on AI and as I was seeing sort of the conversation and also so much policy talk now too, that's very different from two years ago, it made me realize that this was actually the core thing that I should be working on for a book. So that's when I then left the journal to work on the book full-time and am also contributing to The Atlantic. Well, perhaps that moment when ChatGPT launched obviously pushed you in a different direction is also central to your most recent report inside the chaos at OpenAI. You say that the kind of weekend of drama 
that we've seen or perhaps conclude as of this recording on Wednesday afternoon, uh, November the 22nd, started a, a year ago with the release of ChatGPT. Let's just talk about that. Why, why do you frame it that way? So we think there's always been drama at the company, but it wasn't as relevant and as high stakes as before when ChatGPT hadn't happened yet, because then OpenAI was not as much in the um, kind of public domain and people weren't thinking about it as much. Policymakers were not thinking about it, barely thinking about it. And also the actual technologies that OpenAI was developing were not affecting as many people. So there had been drama, but ChatGPT is what sort of escalated that drama to a tipping point. What's interesting about OpenAI is it was founded as a nonprofit and it was founded with a particular resistance towards the tech industry. The whole purpose of it being founded as a nonprofit was the co-founders believed that AI development should be shepherded without a tie to profit interests. The issue is that OpenAI then selected a very particular type of AI development to pursue, which is extremely cost intensive. And they realized they needed capital. They weren't able to raise enough of that capital through a nonprofit. So they came up with this kind of strange idea of nesting a capped profit entity under the nonprofit. And at the time, the reason why they did that was they wanted the capped profit to help raise money, but they still wanted to not completely get rid of this kind of notion that they had been founded on, which was that it should ultimately still be governed by a nonprofit. And the nonprofit then had a board of directors. And so what happened over the years at OpenAI after this structure was developed is that there were people that would join the company because they were very excited about what what, what the for-profit entity was doing, the commercialization. There's typical Silicon Valley types that are really, really energized by developing products for people. And then there were people that joined the company because they thought that it was still fundamentally different from all other tech companies with the nonprofit entity. They really bought into the fact that the nonprofit was the way to govern this technology development. And that ultimately, if like push came to shove, the nonprofit could, something could trigger and the nonprofit could slam the brakes on the commercialization. So these two factions within the company really started to rapidly polarize in opposite directions as ChatGPT became more and more unpopular and built more and more momentum. The commercialization faction, they suddenly had this remarkable demonstration of the commercial potential of the technology they were building. So they started escalating kind of the momentum around let's continue to build, launch more products, capitalize on the fact that we're now the hottest startup in Silicon Valley. Whereas like this other faction that was sort of a faction that's also kind of wrapped up in fears of existential risk around AI technologies, that faction started seeing ChatGPT as the exact opposite demonstration. Like ChatGPT suddenly was in the hands of 100 million users. These users were using the tools in unexpected ways, some in abusive ways. And this was also to them a demonstration of we were exactly right all along that AI development is scary and that we should be controlling it and that we should actually slow down. And so when that tension reached a boiling point, it also split the leadership team. So Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, the president of OpenAI, 
they come from a startup background. They come from that background where they love to build products. They have the habit of commercializing and scaling and wanted to continue encouraging that kind of momentum. Whereas Ilya Sutskever, the chief scientist, he is like this mystic philosopher, mad scientist type who increasingly saw in his kind of theoretical vision for the future that um, superintelligence was going to be here soon and that therefore the fear camp was actually correct in really focusing on how to avoid existential risk and how to um, avoid this kind of like sloppy development. And so when the leadership clashed and the board ended up actioning on it, that's ultimately what you see cascading from the events of the weekend. So a lot of things have changed since you published this piece on November the 19th, including that Sam Altman has been restored, Greg Brockman has been restored. There were some changes to that board structure, a couple of new individuals, including Larry Summers popping up for whatever reason. And Are we know, surprised though? <laughs> <laughs> apparently there are going to be other individuals named to expand the board down the line. Perhaps there might even be some women or non-white males, we'll see. But I want to ask you about one particular detail that hasn't changed, I don't think, which is that we still do not know exactly why Sam Altman was fired. Is that still correct? Yeah, that's 100% correct. We have no idea. Absolutely no idea. The board has not been transparent about this. And there's just been, been a lot of leaks to the media, but it's really unclear who is driving the narratives that are being reported in the media. And we don't know if the employees were involved or not. And we don't know if Ilya was a central player or just the messenger. There's so many unknowns about what actually happened. It's more just that we know like the sequence of events that occurred. So there's still much more to, to learn there. Apparently, one of the uh, points of agreement is that there will be some sort of independent investigation of what went on. Uh, so perhaps all of those things will come out in due time. I do want to ask you a few questions about what you know about the role of Ilya Sutskever, uh, the chief scientist at OpenAI, who apparently was one of the individuals who led this effort to oust Altman, reversed course, and as you say, has perhaps taken a kind of turn towards well, I would say the mystical in terms of his belief in artificial general intelligence and how near it is. One of the, I think, stunning, or to me at least, stunning anecdotes that you share in your story is around Sutskever at the open AI holiday party last year, leading employees in a chant, feel the AGI. What can you tell us about this individual and his role here? So the first thing is we don't actually know if he led this thing or if he was caught up in this thing. Certainly, it seems like he played a central role, but but was he? It's 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 just unclear if he initiated. I I should say. The thing about Ilya is the way that he came to OpenAI was he was actually picked by Sam Altman to be the chief scientist or to lead the scientific endeavors because Altman and Brockman. They are not AI researchers, and they wanted a really strong AI researcher on the team that would be a leader in that regard. And so Altman was really keen on Sutskever joining as part of the founding members 
of OpenAI because Seth Giver had at that time already made his reputation. He was already famous as a scientist because he had co-written a paper as a PhD student under Jeffrey Hinton that basically initiated the deep learning revolution, the first AI revolution within the business community. And so he's always had this personality of being very intense about things, like believing things with a religious fervor. Even when he was a PhD student, Cade Metz, the New York Times reporter who's covered AI for a very long time, he writes in his book, Genius Makers, that Sudskever would do one-handed handstand push-ups if he got really excited about a research idea. So this was like, this guy has always been a little bit mystical and a little bit of a philosopher and a little bit intense. And also in an interesting way, like a gentle soul as well, like just really (laughs) employees have called him like the chief emoji officer to me. Like when he was at OpenAI, he would like shower people with emoji reactions if he really liked something that they sent in Slack. And he would say these things about, so this is why I think that the fuel AGI like really aligns, lines up with his personality. He would always say, we need to remember that we're building a human loving super intelligence. Like it will love us. We will, it like, we will love it. And like, that's ultimately what's going to bring us to, I, I guess, like nirvana as humanity. And so he started to encapsulate that in the phrase like fuel the agi fuel this like human loving agi that is coming into existence and i think there's an added element to this is uh, of course all of the the, the, these three people that like the main characters of the weekend they're all multimillionaires. so i think employees have also pointed this out to me as like an important thing to remember because multi-millionaires they behave differently in society because they don't operate with the same incentives or the same kind of like social protocol as like us plebs. <laughs> so, so I think the fact that he's like really rich and the fact that he was with ChatGPT at the height of on top of it, like everyone at opening, I was feeling like they were on top of the world in a sense. It just amplified a lot of his like natural kind of spiritual mystic tendencies to be a little bit, uh, more to some outlandish. So he's not the only one there, of course, believes in uh, imminent machines of love and grace walking the earth. Uh, Sam Altman's also talked about these ideas around abundance in the near term and uh, artificial intelligence, of course, solving humanity's problems and uh, perhaps solving uh, climate change and uh, poverty and any number of other issues we might face. Um, It's easy to only focus on the individuals in this. One thing I did quite like about your piece on this with Charlie Warzel is that you focus on the kind of power dynamics. And I want to bring in one more individual, but maybe as a way to talk about the power dynamics, which is Satya Nadella on Microsoft. So let's talk about this individual who appears to have just been standing back in the background observing this. Maybe we could think of him as the adult in the room or possibly operating at a different tier altogether. Of course, OpenAI, an $80 billion startup, Microsoft, a nearly $3 trillion tech behemoth. Yes, it's a really good point. I think Satya is 
like the hidden king in all of this. Sachi, as, as I understand from speaking to people who have worked with him closely, is he's very strategic. He's very pragmatic. And he does play sort of a 4D chess game. When he initially invested in OpenAI, there was this question that came up that was like, why invest in an external AI research lab when Microsoft itself has had a longstanding AI research lab called MSR that w- has done very successful things and has already been, is, is built into the company. And I think it's illustrative of maybe Satya's thinking that he did decide to do it. I think in part because, as I understand it, it was like, why not just bet on both? Bet on this external lab, also bet on an internal lab, and like just see which one ends up reaching a new paradigm that will help Microsoft commercialize off of that. OpenAI ended up getting there first, and then that th- you see like the deepening of the relationship, the ten billion dollar investment. OpenAI exclusively uses Microsoft's data centers, and Microsoft exclusively licenses OpenAI's technologies. And so, Microsoft has an enormous, enormous amount riding on this relationship because it has shot up as a star and revived its image as a slow lumbering tech giant with kind of consumer products that no one really likes to use to this like powerhouse of a like B2B provider with their cloud computing service, Azure. And a lot of the Microsoft marketing materials to clients is based on this idea of with you use Azure, you get access to open AI. And so I think for him, I can only imagine that he was sweating profusely to try and figure out some way to make sure that ultimately, whatever happened, he could ensure that this kind of huge selling point that Microsoft has cultivated for itself can stay in some way, which is why it makes so much sense that there was a point when (laughs) Nadella offered a job to Altman and Brockman to run this kind of team inside. And you could see that Nadella and Altman were messaging on Twitter at certain points of this saga, like saying the Microsoft opening our partnership is still so important and we are going to do everything in our power to stabilize this relationship. It's messaging to the customers of Microsoft, messaging to the shareholders because Microsoft stock was like starting to tank. And ultimately Satya being this very strategic, pragmatic person was like, probably whatever I can do to just secure and assure everyone that um, Microsoft is in control and we're still going to have access to these like cutting edge AI technologies and you can still get access to them through Azure. That was like his end game. That does seem to be the conclusion of your piece the other day, even though this may have seemed like a sort of crazy kind of moment uh, with OpenAI possibly falling apart, possibly somehow being folded into Microsoft. Now it, it appears carrying on as an independent entity, but very much under the puppet strings of Microsoft. One detail that I hadn't really quite understood was the extent to which the $10 billion investment Microsoft made in OpenAI is really for computing resources, almost like a barter, which is interesting. (laughs) Just like any old startup taking credits from Amazon or Microsoft, OpenAI is in this sort of similar boat hooked on its cloud compute infrastructure. This idea that 
At the end of the day, there's only a handful of folks in Silicon Valley that are defining the future of these technologies that are making the decisions. Absolutely. What you said in our piece and what I really, truly believe is there is this fatal flaw that has been revealed or this dangerous flaw in the progression of AI that has been revealed in this whole thing, in this whole drama, which is that it doesn't matter whether Sam stays, Sam goes, Sam stays, Sam goes. The Ultimately, like the fact that 99.99999% of the world is watching this on the sidelines and wondering what is going on and what does this actually mean for the future of the most consequential technology in our age and for all of us that might be um, relying on the technology or fearful of the technology or um, trying to figure out how to live with um, this new era of AI, whatever it is, like 99.99% have zero say, zero participation at all, don't have any visibility. And that is, I think, the most important lesson that we need to learn from this weekend and that policymakers should very much be realizing and I hope acting on, which is if we actually want to get to a place where if we believe the sort of general premise that OpenAI says, which is like AGI, we're building AGI that's beneficial for humanity. If we actually want something like that, setting aside like skepticism around AGI or whatever, but a technology that benefits everyone can only arise when there are a lot, there is a broad base of people participating in it and helping to usher it forward in an inclusive and democratic way. And it's, that's just absolutely not, it's like the polar opposite extreme that's happening. Like the, the fact that it really came down to three members of a board that kind of led to the cascading of these events at three people that could cha- completely fundamentally change the direction of AI development. And then, and then of course, then there's a wider circle of investors and whatever that then suddenly got involved. But it's just, it's such a tiny group. And all of those discussions are happening behind closed doors. And that's just, it is not healthy or sustainable in terms of getting to a future that is better and, and um, more inclusive. Ezra Klein has a column today in the New York Times that kind of comes to a similar conclusion. It says to some extent he's been cheered by how governments and others have taken the possibilities, pitfalls of AI over the last year. Um, but I don't know, maybe on the policy question, I assume that's something you're following closely for your book as well. Do you think that there will be immediate learnings for lawmakers as they think about what to do? in order to perhaps democratize governance of some of these potentially systemically important or possibly even existentially important technologies? I sort of been personally a bit concerned about the way that policy has been heading with the AI executive order. You sort of see in the document some really profound ideas that I've, I really stand behind. AI needs to work. It needs to not discriminate. We need to be testing and auditing these technologies before deploying them in sensitive contexts. And then on top of that, you see stapled on these really intense, like existential risk-driven concerns and policy like that is now written in the force of law. 
And I think that this kind of artifact kind of illustrates how much policymakers have been heavily leaning on some of the companies that are developing these technologies and OpenAI in particular to advise them on how to regulate these things. And that is not great. (laughs) Of course, policymakers should be talking to these companies, but they should not be relying on them as much as I think they have based on the policy documents that we've been seeing coming out of these, these kind of processes, like consultation processes. And that's what this weekend shows us is that we are already in a situation where no one's really participating other than the people at the companies and and the most just the most elite people at the companies and if we're going to codify and entrench that power in policy that is going to be hugely problematic moving forward and i know that there are many people in government that are very actively trying to engage with a broader base of stakeholders essentially They're trying to uh, talk to labor. They're trying to talk to civil society. They're trying to talk to small businesses that are not these these AI firms. But one person that I was speaking to, I was in DC last week, one person mentioned sometimes with these conversations, we're definitely going to talk to the companies. And then it's, okay, and then who else do we talk to? It's It's not an afterthought, but it's like, there is still like this huge imbalance of um, emphasis there's no way that they're not going to talk to the companies and then everyone else is, if we get to you, we get to you. And also there's a lot more research that they have to do to figure out who these other groups of stakeholders should be. And so by default, every single group talks to companies and then compiles their own list of other people that they want to talk to. So you end up with an amplification of what the companies say. And I just, I, I think, yeah, I hope policymakers take away the lesson that They've already put in a lot of work, but they need to continue putting in more work to hear the other complete other perspectives and like people that are coming from like completely opposite perspectives, like the most marginalized communities that are being are, are suddenly afraid of like job displacement and things like that, and come to a more nuanced understanding of how this technology is actually affecting people on the ground and how they can actually regulate greater transparency for these companies as well. And of course, some of those conversations in Washington are also happening behind closed doors. Senator Schumer's forums, a good example of that. Well, let me ask you this. We're talking on Wednesday. It's just before the holiday. I think it does appear that this open AI business is at least mostly sewn up. Perhaps the news cycle is not entirely over. Anything you're watching for in the next a couple of days or in the next week or so that my listeners should be aware of? Any unanswered questions that you're looking to see what will happen to them? I'm looking for the seams to possibly burst again, to use the metaphor that you used. <laughs> but the thing is, Sam has come back. He's re-entrenching his power by making sure that this new board is going to be tipped to his favor. But the employees, like these factions within the company are still there. And I know that there are certain employees that are on the exact opposite ideological extreme as Sam's approach to commercialization that are still there. And I suspect that things could come to a head again because in Silicon Valley, 
when you are employed by a company, your identity is very much attached to your professional life. It's not just you're an employee of a company and then you go home and you're someone else. You are dedicated. And it's even more so with OpenAI. And a lot of the people within OpenAI, they genuinely believe that they are developing like a civilizational shaping technology. And when you set the stakes that high, you will take drastic measures if you think that something is going wrong. So I that's what I'm looking out for. I think that there could be more drama to come. These employees that disagree with Altman very strongly could take some drastic measures to try and rescramble things again. I don't know. Whether or not it happens in like the next couple of days, I too I can say for certain that it is going to happen. We're going to see more drama in the future. Whatever the time skill is, the more that this technology kind of um, increases capabilities and, and and is powerful, the more um, we'll start seeing a Game of Thrones style control over it. So I don't think this is the end of the story at all. Um, it's it's just a temporary reprieve. Well, I should mention that your Proton account is listed on your Twitter and maybe other social media bios. So. If individuals who may be, I don't know, extras even in this particular season of Game of Thrones would like to reach out, I'm sure they can do that, get in touch with you and perhaps shed whatever light they know about what's happening behind the scenes. Karen, I appreciate you speaking to me just before Thanksgiving again. Hope it won't be two years that pass before we do this again. And I look forward to the book coming out. I hope you'll come back on and, and maybe at least catch us up to this story when you've been able to punctuate it with the publication of that book. That sounds fantastic. Thank you, as always, Justin, for your wonderful work and for inviting me on the podcast. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.